This is not a race against the machines. This is a race with the machines. everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the B21 podcast. This marks the first episode in a three-part series called Matterless Matters, which summarizes a series of conferences we have the pleasure of hosting here at B21. Matterless Matters focuses on questions that may sound bizarre at first, but always lead to fascinating discussions. A dedicated team of writers, hailing mainly from Haxford University and Frown University, have written reports on these conferences, which you can find on our website at building21.ca slash matterless-matters. But we thought it would be fun to include them here on our podcast, too. So please enjoy the next few episodes, narrated by Dr. Maria Morrison, professor of German at McGill. Today's podcast will combine two articles. The first one is on mermaids and the second on zombies. Hope you enjoy! Welcome to today's podcast on Matterless Matters. Are mermaids fish or mammals? Today we will be hearing from Dr. Sylvia Gilbertston from the Department of Cryptozoology at Haxford University. At the first ever Matterless Matters conference, the very serious mermaid question was debated. For those unaware, the mermaid question centers on the biological classification of mermaids, specifically whether they are fish or mammals. You will hear the various theories proposed by the elite intellectuals who contributed to this enlightening conference. Before starting the full debate, an initial vote was taken. Five people said mermaids were mammals. Three said they were fish. Two were undecided, and one person decided to create their own category and argue that mermaids are a hybrid. The first theory was that mermaids need humans in order to reproduce, either directly as mates or indirectly, much as mosquitoes need others' blood for their eggs' survival. This fits with one of the most well-known traits of mermaids, that of luring human sailors to their doom. If sailors were unwitting agents in mermaid reproduction, this would point to mermaids being closer to mammals, as it is more likely that both the sexual organs and the genetic material of the two species would be compatible if they belong to the same class of organisms. This would also help explain why mermaids are physically so similar to humans. In this case, mermaids could be compared to mules, but with more fertile offspring. According to this theory, mermaids should also have some way of knowing about their partner or their victims beforehand, as their entrancing songs often speak of their victims' accomplishments, dreams, and desires. One member proposed that mermaids may have some kind of database through which they share information about sailors, information gleaned by following ships and eavesdropping. Another strength of this theory is that it considers mermaid anatomy. Mermaids' tails flop in a vertical direction, like those of whales and dolphins, and unlike fish, whose tails flop horizontally. 
The movement a marine mammal makes when swimming is similar to the movement a land mammal makes when galloping. It is the same structures that control both movements. One of the reasons whales are considered mammals. A second theory took a more evolutionary perspective by proposing that mermaids are a remnant of the time when many mammals climbed out of the sea and evolved into lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and all the other mammals we know today. According to this theory, mermaids would have begun the same ascent onto land and then for unknown reasons, possibly ecological, become isolated from the others and continued their own evolutionary path. This would explain both their marine and terrestrial traits. Here again, they would be mammals. However, there remains another physical characteristic that is unexplained by either of the above theories. Mermaids have scales. Although there are mammals with scales, such as armadillos, the types of scales found on mermaids are generally only found on fish and reptiles. This led to the third and most popular conclusion, that mermaids are in fact fish that only look like humans. Like anglerfish, who use their luminous lures to attract prey, mermaids evolved a complex swim bladder that looks like a human, their ideal prey. This modified swim bladder deflates under the pressure of the deep sea, but as the mermaid swims to the surface, it inflates and acquires the rough shape of a human. Thanks to an intricate system of air control, similar to that of a bagpipe, this same swim bladder can also produce sounds similar to their victim's singing voice, thus leading to mermaids' reputations as mesmerizing singers. The problem of the tail's flopping direction is solved once we know that the torso of a mermaid is merely a lure. When swimming underwater, the tail moves like a fish's, and they only rotate their body 90 degrees when in view of humans. As the conference drew to a close after the proposal of these three theories, and many other interesting points that sadly exceed the scope of the prison article, a second vote was conducted. This time... Five people said mermaids are fish, one said they are mammals, three were undecided, and one more original soul claimed they were monstrous demigods. From these results, we conclude that the third theory was the most convincing, and we hereby ask that until further research is conducted, mermaids be classified as fish. Welcome to today's podcast on Matterless Matters, where we will hear from Dr. Georgia Harvey from Frown University on the topic, Why do zombies need to eat? Zombies are a prevalent topus in the horror genre, yet these creatures come with their own share of mystery and paradox. At the second Matterless Matters conference, we sat down to discuss one of these paradoxes, namely, if zombies are dead... Why is it that they need to eat brains? 
the discussion flirted with the frontier between biology and philosophy. We hope that the few conclusions we reached can contribute to the demystification of the undead. Let us begin with the question, what is a zombie? In the vast realm of monsterhood, zombies are one of the best-known specimens. The term zombie comes from Haitian folklore and refers to a dead body that has been reanimated, most commonly through voodoo magic. This being said, we can trace myths and folktales about the undead all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia, 3500 BC. In a myth showcasing Ishtar, the goddess of love and war, the goddess utters an ominous threat. I shall raise up the dead and they shall eat the living, and the dead shall outnumber the living. And that's from the descent of Ishtar. However, there is little consensus on the nature and characteristics of zombies, even within the otherwise homogenous Hollywood film industry. Some movies depict them as slow and clumsy, for example, Dawning of the Dead in 2017. Others as fast and unstoppable, like the 2009 film Fast Zombies with Guns. For the purposes of our discussion, we have decided on a skeletal definition which draws on all these different depictions. Number one, zombies are dead bodies that have been reanimated and that relentlessly pursue their prey. Is zombification scientific? Though we could be tempted to believe zombies are little less than a product of our collective imagination, we might reach a different perspective once we consider that most zombie stories and movies commonly invoke a virus or a parasite as the origin of the zombie apocalypse. Nature abounds in such viruses and parasites that affect the behavior of their hosts. One particularly striking and widespread example is the nucleopolyhydrosis virus, NPV, which typically infects caterpillars. Once NPV has infected a caterpillar, it causes it to crawl upwards and hang on a branch in the shape of an inverted V. The caterpillar then dies from the virus, decomposes, and starts to liquefy. The virus oozes from the dead body of the caterpillar onto lower-hanging insects and vegetation, thus ensuring its propagation. Human zombies can also be viewed as bodies that are uncannily maneuvered by viruses whose sole goal is contamination. This raises interesting questions. For example, is an NPV-infected caterpillar a zombie? And can we consider this caterpillar to be alive as it is powerlessly crawling up to its doom? It is difficult to determine whether human zombification happens while the host body is dead or alive, but it would seem that human bodies are often deemed dead in virtue of being zombified. According to this interpretation, the virus is only artificially maintaining its host alive insofar as this serves its propagation. But because the free will of the host is compromised, we no longer consider it as being legitimately alive. What about eating? The NPV virus does not spread by causing caterpillars to eat fellow insects. Similarly, in contemporary depictions, zombies do not generally eat their prey. They rather bite prey. Mouths are a vehicle of predilection for viral infection in humans, 
so it seems sound that the virus would select for this method of contamination. Going back to the account of Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess, or to brain-eating representations of zombies in folklore, some points of contention remain. It was agreed during the conference that there is an evolutionary dead end for behavior-altering viruses or parasites to continuously kill their hosts, and that these organisms probably need their host's brain in order to maneuver the body and further propagate. It would hence not make sense for zombies to eat human brains instead of merely infecting them. However, popular depictions of hungry zombies can shed new light on this question if we view them through a metaphorical lens. While literally eating a brain leads to its physical disintegration, metaphorical eating could entail a disintegration of the brain's essence and relevance to us. Given brains are the organs we most readily associate with free will, when a brain is not operated by its host any longer, it may appear as if the host is, in effect, brainless, that is, deprived of its own mind and will. The myth of the brain-eating zombies is hence eye-opening with respect to the underlying threat these monsters instantiate, a threat to a person's very identity and human dignity. But why zombies? Stories of zombies capitalize on our fear of death. Zombies unsettlingly cross the boundary between the dead and the living. When the goddess Ishtar casts her curse, she is effectively threatening Mesopotamians that the tombs in stillness, which keep death at bay until its time to strike comes, would dissolve. It is worth noting that out of all organisms, viruses are those whose status as living beings is among the most questioned and most controversial. It exceeds the scope of this paper to delve into the particularities of this matter. But viruses, for instance, do not eat or consume energy. They invade cells who replicate the genetic material for them. This arguably contributes to making them a particularly alien and hence terrifying threat. Another factor contributing to the dread that zombies or viruses may inspire is that they are single-minded. They have one sole goal, and that is to propagate at all costs. It is impossible to resist it or to negotiate with it. However, fear of death or evildoers committed to a destructive goal fuel the whole horror genre. So why is the zombie apocalypse such an attractive and pervasive topos? We believe that this is specifically because zombies eat and thereby consume not only humans, but humanness. They threaten to contaminate us with an utter and simple pursuit of destruction. In the midst of a zombie apocalypse, society is stripped to its bare bones. How to find hope amid those circumstances? How to carve out humanity again? These distressing questions are what infuse the myth of zombies with timeless meaning. Survival against all odds highlights the very essence of the life we hold dear to. And so, why do zombies eat? Perhaps they eat because we are scared of ceasing to be human. Perhaps they eat to be a compelling enemy. Whatever it might be, the luxury of asking this question shows that we have been lucky enough to avoid the zombie apocalypse. So far.
Thank you again to Dr. Maria Morrison for narrating these really thought-provoking conference reports. Stay tuned for the next couple of episodes of Matterless Matters, as well as all the other B21 podcasts that will be coming out shortly. Thank you.